Hi, everybody, and welcome back to uh, Digital Capital Advisors Fireside Chat Series. We're excited to have you here. For those of you that haven't joined us before, I'm Andrew Daniel. I'm a senior investment banker here on the team at DCA. Uh, Digital Capital Advisors is a global investment bank. We've got offices in New York, Berlin, and San Francisco. Um, and this is part of our 10-year anniversary celebration, which is coming up very quickly here in September. Uh, this series is hour-long conversations with world-class founders, CEOs, and entrepreneurs of businesses that we think are particularly interesting inside of the ecosystem. Uh, today, we've got a great guest, uh, the founder and CEO of Stardog. Uh, Kendall, we're excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. Uh, awesome. Well, why don't we start by talking a little bit about Stardog and giving folks some context on where you're coming from and your business. It'd be great to hear a little bit about the story and uh, where the company has come from, where you guys are today, get a bit of a sense of the product and solution set you have, and, and just give a high-level outline. Sure, thanks. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Stardog is an um, enterprise knowledge graph, graph platform. So we're an enterprise software uh, company in the data management space. Uh, we will be a, one day one of those uh, decade-long overnight successes that you hear a lot about. So my uh, two co-founders and I met at uh, University of Maryland, one of the artificial intelligence labs there, a long time ago. And we did a, some fundamental research together um, and then spun, a, spun this business out, what, a predecessor of this business, and, and more or less bootstrapped for about a decade working on some of the core technology. Uh, although there was a little bit of strategy there that we were uh, – very you know, careful students of the data management space. And this is all right before the rise of NoSQL, right? So that sure. big disruption sure. in the data management space. And then after that, we you know, you know, get big data, data science, and that kind of leads us in today. And we, we knew that we wanted to take some of the research we had commercialized or, or sort of sorry, developed at, at university and, and commercialize it. And that was around this idea of a knowledge graph, which uh, for the folks in the audience who are you know, like data management techies, Knowledge Graph is really what um, one of the few things that the FANG companies all have in common from a technology point of view. So the, the term Knowledge Graph comes but roughly from the kind of commercial academic nexus that runs from Google to Stanford University Computer Science Department, roughly. And a Knowledge Graph is a, is a wide-scale sort of AI and graph data approach to data unification and, and uh, uh data integration across uh, data silos. Sure. And so in the in the Google context, they use this technology for uh, sort of monetizing and managing a big important data set that we call the web. I mean, that's more or less where di- Google comes from. But if you look at somebody like a LinkedIn, uh, Microsoft, of course, they're doing a similar thing with very similar technology only for a different data landscape. In that case, it's more or less everyone's professional information. So like you and I and lots of people in the audience are actual nodes in the LinkedIn knowledge graph of everybody's professional information. And, sure. and the, the, the other like milestones in my resume and your may like resume places we worked are nodes. And then there are edges in that big graph like that would represent, you know, you and I worked together at a location or like I sold a business to a firm you represented that sort of sure. thing. Uh, and then, like, let's let's go to Facebook uh, again. A similar story, similar technology story underneath the covers, but again, a different data landscape. In this case, unfortunately, from a privacy point of view, but like Facebook is monetizing everyone's personal information. You know, where where you went to school, who your friends are, what your interests are, you know, who you want to vote for, all that good stuff. So, uh, the technology is especially new. I mean, it, it's new-ish, early two thousands. Kind of comes 
again, with this rise of all this NoSQL stuff. But for our, from our perspective, uh, Evan and Mike and I, the three founders, we wanted to build a platform effectively that provided knowledge graph capabilities for more or less the rest of the Fortune 2000, right? So I don't, I don't love, I mean, I'm not a Valley entrepreneur, I'm an East Coast entrepreneur, so I don't love the 90 second elevator pitch, but it is a useful tool to, to make sure that you do have like a, you know, just give me the bottom line version of, of what your company's about and what, 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 the, what the thesis of the company is. And ours is effectively that, like, so it's knowledge graph for everyone else. Yeah. All the companies that are, you know, important companies, I'll come back to that in a second. I think there's a, we, we have a kind of a unique view on what counts as an important company, but like important companies in the, in the global economy sense that aren't, you know, while they're all coming technology companies, they're not, none of them are fan companies, sure. none of them, even a really, you know, really, really big company. And our customers are really only big companies. The amount of investment they can make in data management, as important as they all acknowledge that is, yeah. really like pales in comparison to, yeah. you know, even like a, 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 you know, maybe a mid-size important technology company like a WeWork or a Lyft or an Uber, sure. right? I mean, it's just, it's not as intense. So what they want to do is get some of those benefits. Now, they don't often, they don't all know this yet. This is an emerging category. So our fight at Stardog is to really help the world understand, and that's, you know, both our existing customers, the market, the, the analysts, you know, there's a bunch of constituents here to understand that this approach to data unification, as we call it, is really the future of not just data management, but in some sense of the enterprise, given that everyone sort of recognizes the key importance of, uh, of data in, in, all, in, in every firm on the planet. And, sure. and, and I'll, just, I'll just stop with this and just say, from my point of view, being a kind of a software guy, but with a, a classical education, this is my second career, I was previously a philosopher of all things, <laughs> which just means I read a lot of different kind of books and whatever, had, had pretended to have some big ideas. But from a, from a classic economy point of view, I think what's interesting about the future for the next 10 or 20 years is, one of the things that justifies in an important sense an individual firm's right to exist in the economy is that it is the steward or guardian, the repository, if you will, of a very unique slice of humanity's data-like legacy. Sure. Like all, all the stuff that we know, all the science, you know, that's fighting COVID, like we have customers like NASA putting people back on the moon and on Mars, like all that important information that contributes to things we care about as a civilization. Increasingly, people understand that economy uh, firms in an economy aren't just like the goods and services they produce. They're that too. And it's not just the human capital. That's obviously important, maybe the most important thing, but that the data universe or the data repository that they're, that they own or manage or, or create is, is unique. And, and, and that's where, you know, what we do and what the FANG companies do, like, again, actually, I see my dog has showed up in the background. Okay. We are definitely, we're definitely in panic. Extra panic we'll put him on yeah, the, that, put him on that is not the, that is not one of the star dogs. She's just <laughs> agitated. Okay. I'm going to ignore it. Um, uh, like, you know, the important, uh, the, the, one of the important, like, I think, uh, themes for us is that it's pretty similar technology from Google to Facebook to LinkedIn or to Apple or Amazon, both working on this stuff. Amazon's building a giant, we'll build, end up, end up there, Knowledge Graph will be like the most impressive product catalog ever, right? yeah. for instance. eBay is building one of these. Um, it's the data, 
And what, what I love about the technology and, and as the market matures, one of the things we've learned to tell this, to put into the story is that it really is the data that's the most important thing, but that you need this, you need the right kind of technology to enable it and, and make that, you make that real. Yeah. So I'll, I'll stop there. I mean, it, it gives a bit of a flavor of, of what we're about. I think it certainly does. And, and where I'd like to take it from here is talking a little bit about evolution. I think one of the things that I talk about frequently on this series is the idea that you know, enterprise data historically has been immensely locked up, right? I mean, in terms of where the accessibility of enterprise data, it has lived across a variety of places, whether in traditional server bays or stacks, whether in some places where mobility is a little bit stronger, but ultimately not that accessible, all the way to now into a cloud setting. We've gone through this evolution across a variety of sides of enterprise with some of the leaders, like you mentioned the FANG guys, right? They're on the leading front of this, but come down a little bit and that mid-sized enterprise has transitioned depending on the legacy of the business is in different stages of process of making the data accessible. But ultimately, I think what's happening is this awareness of, hey, this data that we're capturing, and now we're really paying attention to the data that we're capturing, you know, there's value here, right? There are insights to be generated here. And I'd be curious, as you think about the evolution of that awareness, and ultimately the evolution of the solutions that enable us to not only aggregate data, but drive intelligence of some kind, I often call it actionable insights, knowledge graph being one of those things, and, and I mean, arguably on the cutting edge of those uh, technology tools that can be leveraged to ultimately generate insight from that data set. You know, I'd be curious how you think about the evolution of enterprise data access, really, and then, and then ultimately the evolution of enterprise data insights and the tools that have been along that path? Oh, yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, uh, in particular, I like that question, especially because um, it kind of referring back to something I said earlier, being a kind of a second career person uh, without any, I took a lot of coursework, but never got around to an actual computer science course. Yeah. So a little bit weird, but I did do a very intensive, um, like, you know, personal study when I was making this transition for philosophy. One thing philosophy does equip you with is the, like critical thinking skills sure. necessary to like come into a new area of endeavor or, you know, research literature and really engage with it. And, and I took that really seriously. That was, that was basically Andrew, that was me from 29 to 31 or 32 more, <laughs> more or less, uh, more or less full time. But one of the things I paid a lot of attention to well, just probably because of the quirk of my brain was the history of it. And I think yeah. like one of the things that people, you know, STEM is great. STEM is invaluable, irreplaceable. But oftentimes, STEM education does not include uh, historical appreciation, and that's fine for like practitioners, for an individual developer, for a for a person you know who's designing algorithms. But from a strategy, from a product strategy point of view, uh, you know, like context matters. That's right. Where we have been, because I we do think of you know in in, in a little bit of a we're not a B corp, right? We're not doing public benefit primarily, but I do want to think about our contribution in the context of, you know, how have people been managing data in, in a historical context? Because we do think of ourselves, we think of this knowledge graph like turn as the next chapter in a story and, and being able to relate it to what's come before it actually is, you know, it's super helpful just in something as mundane as messaging and positioning and personas and like sure. this stuff because we're often selling to people who have uh, the the guy who runs North America sales for us, uh, lovely guy has this analogy that he says we're often selling to burn victims, right? <laughs> which is to say, which is you know quite a, a quite a dramatic way of putting it, but it's people who have engaged with. Uh, 
a, a fair slice of most of the past in terms of your question, like how do you manage data and how do you make it accessible? And they have the scars to show. And, you know, and so oftentimes I have described somewhat poetically, our job as salespeople it's in the startup context is almost a therapeutic helping people and organizations learn to trust again. Yeah. Right? Because we'll often make these claims that at first blush seem like, uh, like, you know what, that's, that seems unlikely. Now this is the value of, of not only analogizing, analogizing to the fan companies, but it actually being kind of continuous with what they do because everybody's had that experience of sitting down at Google or Facebook and it seems to know what you're asking about before. Sure. Right. And it's spooky. And, you know, we want to get some of that same kind of, as you said, actionable insight into, into the enterprise world. Cause, cause these organizations matter. Right. So in terms of like historical, like what we've seen, we, we anchor folks a lot on, the transition, as I've already alluded, from the data landscape of the enterprise until maybe you know ten years ago, utterly dominated by relational data, relational database systems, yeah. and the sort of associated. And and it, and when you look at that, you think of a company like an Oracle or an Informatica or you know Microsoft or IBM, all built significant, obviously significant businesses on relational as the sort of king of the enterprise data landscape, and and it makes sense, right? Because historically most business data fit into a relational model very nicely right now there were lots of problems with this and this thing we call the data silo problem you called it locked up uh right or you know we we, we often talk about disconnected data um that already that the, the the germ of that problem already exists in the relational model right so yeah. in some important sense what we're saying is the relational model, despite its name, it's somewhat ironic, is not actually very good at representing and managing relationships, which is sure. one, of, one of these weird little quirks of, of fate or of life that we have to deal with. And it's really the connectedness between what are otherwise unconnected. That's why I love the data silo metaphor so much. Yeah. I will tell you, I love the data silo metaphor so much that when I moved my family two years ago out of D.C. into Virginia, where we live, we bought a house that is a converted dairy barn. I love to tell the story. Converted dairy barn that has an actual silo, <laughs> right? So because when we set, found the house, we were you know eager in my growing family to move out of the district, but uh, we found a house with a silo attached, and I was like, well, look, I just can't. Perfect. <laughs> I, and so my extra, my my uh, my fitness bike is in the, the basement of silo near my bedroom, and I just couldn't resist the temptation. But the point of a silo, the reason that's such a beautiful metaphor is a farmer managing a big dairy farm with lots of cows to feed, right? Has to maintain, it's a supply chain issue, has to maintain some sense of inventory control. And the thing about a data silo is it contains something very, very valuable. Sure. But you have to go up to it and stick your head inside of it to see how much of that, right? You can't, you can't be across your property and look at their opaque, yeah. right? And that, that's the point of it as a metaphor that enterprises contain or, or, or own lots and lots of valuable data that, if it can be connected and contextualized and put into some coherent, you know, form, a lot of the challenges of the enterprise become a lot simpler, a lot shallower, right? I mean, there's this famous story about Facebook being able to sort of sometimes predict that a woman was pregnant yeah. before she told her friends and family because it, it knows a lot of stuff about her, like what's she looking at, what's she reading, what is she looking to buy, right? And, and, and so in that sense, we think that the future being powered by data and by actual insight that's derived from data 
is and, and you know it, that is the case and that's the future we're trying to contribute to but you know like i'm also a believer in that capital markets are not perfect uh in the in the classic information sense that they you know you all can make mistakes sure. and alloc allocate capital inefficiently and in this case i think that we are also trying to exploit this pretty significant imbalance in the way that capital has been deployed over the last 10 years around data and enterprise sure. uh, insight because a lot of that money almost all of that money in fact went into these very beautiful like insight engines a lot of analytics but those are effectively fancy race cars in a civilization where it has not yet been uh you know like exxon hasn't been invented yet so there's no reliable fuel uh supply chain for the fuel that power like if you had ferraris a hundred years before you had exxon it would be a weird thing right because you'd have this beautiful thing we all want to drive it watch it race but then the provisioning of fuel to make it go is like weird and non you know, it's not capitalized, it's not rationalized or efficient, it's a pain in the ass, it's artisanal, right? Pre-capitalist, right? Pre-industrial. Uh, that would be a weird world, It'd be a very weird world. But in fact, that is the world we live in with respect to data. So uh, having a little bit of historical perspective about this, like we have all, a lot of money's gone into, again, very, very impressive, algorithmic, insightful, like the field of statistics, for instance, is under constant innovation now because in large part because of machine learning. That's like super exciting and super fascinating yeah. from like a Harvard University point of view. That's great. But data is the fuel for all of that. And most companies struggle not at the insight, not at the moment of insight, but at the moment of like fueling the vehicle. Yeah. And it's very frustrating, right? Because uh, this is, I think, best kind of exemplified in that statistic shows up in the New York Times all the time. Data scientists on average spend, I don't we'll get the statistic, but you, you know, your audience will know the statistic. On average, data scientists spend like a third or a fourth, a quarter, 40% of their time munging data, not, not scientifically forming hypotheses and trying, you know, not training models, not driving and just dealing with all those disconnected silos. So for us, that was the big, you know, what smells like a billion dollar business or company worth a lot of money, let's say, if you can really bring some leverage and some product to bear on that part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I love your visualization with regard to the race car. I think that's a compelling one and one that we talk about a lot. And I think as we look at it from an investment bank perspective, we think about companies that we know are out raising capital or have raised capital and where we've spent money. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. We spend a lot of money on insight, attribution, whatever it is, it's on that right side of the equation when the left side of the equation is so often really bad, right? Or very limited. One of the things I think is compelling with us with the knowledge graph specifically, you think about the alternatives that exist in the marketplace is the diversity of use case ultimately exists. And I think, you know, the large companies that leverage a knowledge graph today, Fang or some, but again, drift down further and the diversity of use case expands fairly exponentially. That diversity creates a very powerful tool to bring in a very diverse set of data, aggregate it and then figure what you'd like to do with it. I'd be curious how you think about the value of the knowledge graph specifically relative to enterprise insights and how that diversity of use case ultimately creates an advantage perhaps for the knowledge graph as opposed to alternatives. Uh, well, so that's a great question. And I'm, um, 
very tempted, and I will indulge myself a little bit, to take that question. That question can go in either ways. I can talk about knowledge graph technology. I, I will say somewhat immodestly, I think we're the leader in that burgeoning space, which is very early. Well, maybe the reason small. you're on this, uh, on this fireside well, chat. <laughs> well done. Well, well done, Andrew. Uh, yeah, this is, this is a place where we are aligned. Let's say that. Um, but I mean, I think there's a way to take the question about the technology. But for me, I want to, at least for a minute, take it more specifically about startup because that diversity is really something that, um, and, and this is not unique to us. I like to think here about MongoDB, which is a very important company, very va very valuable company. Um, and, and they face a similar problem in that when you have, and it's a, kind of an old problem, but when you bring a horizontally applicable disruptive technology to data management in particular, at least let's say for the last 10 or 20 years, I, I can't say so much before that, but um, this is like, there's this concept in ancient Greek philosophy I'll give you, in fact, I'll give you an ancient Greek philosophy word they call the pharmakon. This is the Greek word that the word, that our word pharmacy comes from, right? Yeah. So pharma, pharma, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical. Uh, and, but for the Greeks, they were very, um, Plato talks about this actually, very in touch with the fact that a pharmakon um, wasn't a medicine only. It was a medicine, the word is often used to mean medicine, but it's often used to mean poison because a thing taken in the right amount, like cures your stomach ache, sure. you take, take too much hemlock, it kills you dead, yeah. right? So it's about balance and it's about proportion and it's about recognizing that your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness and vice versa. If you don't you know, get the twisty knobs exactly right or get them directionally correct. And, and for me thinking about this wide applicability of the many use cases, what you're calling diversity, that is from a, like a financial investment point of view, what makes a business like this potentially very valuable, what makes a business like Mongo actually very valuable, right, yeah. is a big TAM, right, because this problem exists everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but then that, in if that's not controlled for and addressed properly, you go out into the marketplace and tell a story that doesn't really resonate with anyone in particular. Sure. So th this is a significant struggle for every this really constitutes what it means that we, you, you know, either have or haven't figured it out yet and you're sure. ready to scale or you're not ready to scale because what you have to figure out. And again, being an ex philosopher, I'm very tempted to, you know, use these analogies around, you know, philosophers think about diversity as you say, but they also think about unity and they think about diversity and unity intention. Yeah. Right. So, and, and you can see this in like scientific phenomena, like you go out and you catalog like a bunch of insects in this one part of the Amazon and you're just writing down the details, purple wings, orange wings, you know, mandibles, legs, all this stuff. And then you come back and that's data gathering. You come back and try to impose some scientific order, some derive some insight, right? Some actionable oh. insight maybe. And that's this kind of unity mode. Like, what do these have in common? We see what they, right? So for us and, and for the whole, you know, this is a kind of a standard thing. And, 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 and to think about knowledge graph, it's that technology that's important more than, you know, what powers Stardog. It's exactly that market action of figuring out, you know, okay, this is interesting. It's intriguing. There's early, there's a lot of promise, but what's it best for? What's it best? And even worse, you know, this is the what worries my sales team and my go-to-market team and what fills our pipeline or, or doesn't fill our pipeline when we don't do such a good job. Uh, like what's ready to be sold right now? What does the world want to address right now? And, and actually this maybe transitions a little bit to COVID and pandemic. We'll talk about that a bit. Like we have found since that door, well, that, that wall slammed down and, and you, 
all of us, you know, on the investment side, on the operation side, everybody in the economy had to figure out, okay, on what side of that wall am I now that it has slammed down, right? Like, and we found after, I would say by early April, March, of course, was a shit show as it was everywhere. You know, we talked about that when the first time we talked, March was tough. But we found in April that it was going to be a real tailwind for our business it was going to help us because one of the things that companies got very, very serious about solving right now is around data accessibility, around the future work, digital workplace, and in particular in pharma life sciences, supply chain, supply chain visibility. We were seeing that in public sector business around supply chain security. Just it has become... Uh, Sachin Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, said very famously, maybe in, I think this was maybe May, uh, we've seen, I don't know, won't get the quote exactly right, two or three years of digital transformation in the last 60 days. That quote. And so it's that, like, you know, that diversity, like we can address a lot of problems, but then the question is, what, what, you know, what deals can we do in the next two or three or four quarters? What are people worried about now? What is top of mind? What, what's, What's tickling the nerve, the pleasure and fear centers in the C-suite, right? What what do people have appetite for now? And and in fact, that's such a in an early market like this, uh, you know, Gartner and the analyst folks are trying to figure out the same thing. And they're looking at a lot of market signals. We're trying to correlate supply and demand and messaging and positioning. So I, I think a lot of that is, I mean, folks in your audience who have done this before uh, will be like, yeah, yeah. No, no joke, buddy. Like that's that's what it means to be in a early stage of emerging market. But you know, the I, I will tell you, I think the one thing I've done right, my, my two co-founders and I did right in terms of our business and in terms of the the entrepreneurial challenge and journey. I, I think more than anything, picking a problem that matters and where you think you have, you know, to go back to like a, a classic Buffett thing, think where you think you can build a moat, a defensible advantage even in technology, um, and go after that like hell, right? And but then and, and that's a that's a long term, it may be a decade long problem, right? Sure. You have to go after that day to day with this sensitivity about, you know, where are we right now? Well we're in this global pandemic. So we well I'll just say in terms of my business, we had signed some deals with some pharma companies in the six months before pandemic, so last year. And they were good deals with great brands, great companies, the global stalwarts in that biz in that in that sector, and they were moving along nicely, right? And then pandemic happens, and suddenly, whoa! Like everybody got so intense and so serious, and it was so easy to get people on the phone, and you know, it, it mattered all of a sudden. And the difference between those is quite dramatic, right? I mean, I'm sharing with you some uh, some details before about this deal we've just recently done. That's game changer for us in the pharma life sciences space and it just that deal would not have been possible a year ago yeah. all the same all the same data challenges existed right a year ago was not that different except it was completely different sure right so that diversity thing is i think an important it is a key i mean in the consumer space the world's completely different i don't understand that space at all but in the b2b space that like breadth of applicability is i think an, an important indicator it's like a necessary but not sufficient condition of whether you've got a hold of a, of, of a really valuable problem that if you can make some traction, make some progress on it, you know, market some reward you. Yeah. Uh, 
I think in our view, and we've had a lot of data and analytics businesses on this on this chat series from CDPs to uh, identity intelligence through to businesses in the knowledge graph space and yourself. And, you know, I think this is our interesting component is we look at CDPs as an example of, again, a business that if you closed your eyes and listened to them, would tell you that they're going to aggregate a bunch of data, will drive actual insights, bring in the engine of insight. But the use case is so constrained, right, that ultimately they're limited to what is really a traditional MarTech use case, right? Can we personalize? Can we customize? Can we do whatever? And, and that's great. And, you know, I think yeah. we've heard the same story from everybody, which is, you know, March was really bad. Uh, April maybe was kind of bad. We turned the corner and all of a sudden now we're seeing this unbelievable adoption where that drum that we were talking before this call, the drum that we've been pounding for a long time is suddenly being heard. And great, right? Our pipeline's filling up. We can get conversations we couldn't get before. These really long sales cycles are shortening. Revenue is up and to the right. And we think that 21 and 22, this will continue, right? That ultimately that adoption has come closer in. That's, that's great. But what's interesting where I think there's this variance that folks maybe don't understand is you go into a CDP, you go into a location intelligence business, you go into a, a more standard data aggregation business, even some of the folks who function on the insight side, and the use cases are, are so constrained and the examples are so limited that, you know, there is a TAM that exists and the TAM is large, but it's not as unbounded as what you see with your business or knowledge graph more generally. And I'm always intrigued by that problem. And this is true, as you pointed out, in all emerging markets, right? When, when you have a technology thing is applicable, the fight is, can we find where we can generate revenue tomorrow? And I built my own company, which is the problem, right? And which do you pick? You can do work in different sectors, but the breadth of the technology that exists, I think really excites us. Because what it, what it indicates to me, I think to our team is, you know, if you can build a technology that is applicable in today's market ecosystem across a variety of use cases, we all believe the use cases are going to get more sophisticated. We all believe that data is growing exponentially and that the number of data points we're capturing, not just on people, but on events in general, right, in mass. If we're improving our data capture capabilities, it means the sophistication of use case is only going to continue to increase. And if you can have a tool that enables that, and again, knowledge graph being one of the tools that enables you to go do that, that's a really exciting place when we think about insight, which I guess in our view is the ultimate view. That's the outcome, right? If you can capture data, you know, insight has to be the answer and the ability to drive, as I call it all the time, actual insight, but ultimately generate some kind of outcome. That's the ROI generative piece. And so I'd be curious, as you think about the link between data aggregation and the knowledge graph in that, right? So we're able to bring all the data into a singular place. We can visualize it. We can make it materialistic. We can understand it better. How do you think about the link between that and what is often labeled as AIML at various uh, levels of accuracy and honesty? You know, I'd be curious how you think about that link and then how it ties to an improved actionable insight. Yeah, so uh, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I won't remember it all. And I think some of your some of your prefatory remarks for that question are, are very tempting to me, but I, I do want to address that. You're free to dig in anywhere you like. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I think it's funny. At some point I learned, I mean, I, and I won't say how recently ago this point was because it would be embarrassing. But uh, at some point I realized that the website of a company like mine, of an emerging, of, of a startup that's, you know, a legitimate ongoing concern, but you know, not not a snowflake. We're not a rocket ship yet, like that. I mean, although I say this, I guess Snowflake isn't a startup anymore. Obviously, yeah. given they we're, we're we're talking about this right the week they filed their S one. Um, although I, I have to say, my my finance team was digging through those documents, looking for some. I'm ACV, sure they were <laughs> looking for some ACV numbers, and 
uh, we, we can't find anything, so more work to do. <laughs> but it, it's always interesting to see, you know, what I, I, actually that kind of gets to the point that the website of a business like that is for the customers. It's not really for investors. Sure. And, and I think there's a conversation. Is it, I, I think there's an interesting duality between what a customer says it does and what a customer says. Again, I'm just talking about telling the next chapter in a story to like appeal to the people who have the experience, positive and negative, you know, of the personas who influence or make decisions or whatnot versus, okay, but what do you really do? Like, cause so I, I can think of, for instance, like important venture back, raised tons of money, very successful business that I know uh, pretty well. I've not been involved with, but you know, one hears that's, tells a lovely story about the future of data management. And, and it is a lovely story and they have interesting technology, but all of their deals are around customer experience and pharma. Yeah. Like, and, that, and, that, and look, that's a great space. It's an important space. It's important to the country, to the globe. I mean, obviously now more than ever. And, and so this is not like diminishing that business in any, uh, in any regard, but it's interesting. Like, a metric that is somewhat subjective, but I don't see people think about it. a metric of analysis is what is the gap between where the company really makes money and what they think or say about what they're doing. Yeah. Right. And I think one of the things that's interesting about, uh, about this business that I, I'm involved with and about knowledge graph stuff, uh, knowledge graph technology general, which is an emerging space, also starting to maybe be called enterprise data fabric. You know, the analysts sure. like to make, make up words. It, we think of these as sounds more exciting. Eh, it's newer. We think of these, it sounds slightly less nerdy, but also awesome. Like, I mean, there, there's some, there's some taste maker aspect of this, which, you know, we don't dispute markets may be imperfect. Maybe they're perfect, but they're also quite mysterious. You can't yeah. do Okay, fine. Um, but there is an interesting, in some sense, uh, you want there to be, or I think we have the opportunity, uh, I think of this, you know, and, and until we get to, you know, a, a more appreciable market size. And for instance, there's a magic quadrant in the Gartner sense for the data fabric or knowledge graph space. There's this scramble to figure out, okay, how do we, as I was saying before, how do we close deals? But we need to do that in a way that respects and stays like somehow true to the larger vision because at some point in a really successful disruptive category creation business and, and i think we can anchor on comparing to snowflake because i think in some important sense it is not that kind of business um, at some point there comes this switch where and again it's happened with mongo mongo goes around for years telling people no no it's all about denormalized semi-structured data and most people are like i don't know what that is Okay, but Mongo would say, like, but it's super important. But then they figure out, no, no, let's just have this use case library. Let's sell those pain points, sell to those pain points, solve those problems. It doesn't matter if people know what that is. Yep. Because at some point, if you're successful enough, the market will come to you and say, okay, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. And that's really when you want to tell that compelling, disruptive story about what you are doing. And that's when the market is prepared to believe you. And then suddenly that becomes the use case. What do you mean you don't have a solution for semi-structured data? One CIO says to the other CIO on the golf course, you've <laughs> got to get on, you've got to get on that. Right. So like the worm turns and uh, like for us, the, the direction, of, you know, and, and so for us, it'll be much like that. We will hit a, you know, and in fact, I think we're about 18 months out from this number. We will hit this inflection point where the market just demands an answer to the question of what the hell is going on over there? Yeah. And, and the analysts just decide to basically take the word of the early adopters and the vendor for what the hell's going on over there. 
And that's what it means to create a new category. And then there's like a gold rush, right? And then, you know, PE and other VC and rush in. And like this happened in RPA, right? Like I I happen to be friendly with one of the C-suite guys who's here in the D.C. area of one of the big RPA leaders. It's a very interesting space, a very full of rocket ships. And, you know, the, the, the analysts didn't know what to do with those companies for a long time, but they were making a lot of money and growing really fast. And from my point of view, as a kind of former, as a technologist, or I come to being a CEO as a product guy, not as a sales or marketing guy, uh, I'm like, that's that's a computer vision company to get to your AI ML point, right? That's a computer vision company. That's what that is. But like, you don't sell computer vision to a CEO, CIO. You use computer vision to sell, you know, uh, 25% year-over-year reduction in call center wait times, hold times, and, and you know, hang-ups. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, bet. Okay. So that you can sell. If you sell enough of that and enough use cases, then people say, well, well, how are you doing this? And then, yeah, you can tell a story about computer vision. And really, who's listening to that story is, you know, maybe the Microsoft's, IBM's, SAP's, acquirers of the world, or maybe the market, you know, the big market, the street. Okay. Do we, you know, should we, is this a company that that exists in its own right? The important thing about AI and ML, and and, and in some ways I'm going to disappoint you and not say anything very insightful that I haven't already said, AI and ML are, I think we should think of them as particular techniques for deriving actionable insight. Sure. That is the point. Not even techniques, families of techniques, research bodies, right? And again, I think what's missing is this reliable supply chain of fuel, which is to say a clean, you know, you know, like something that transforms every enterprise's data landscape, which is really a dumpster fire, if you look carefully enough, no matter the company, into like manages that chaotic kind of Wild West brokenness effectively and can harmonize, rationalize, make coherent that data, almost like a almost what librarians do with publishing industry, right? Uh, like impose some order on the chaos so that the AI and ML insights can be, uh, you know, like productized, industrialized, predicted, so that they become, we talk about data science. It's really a metaphor, like capitalists, like CEOs don't really, with with the exception of some industries like pharma that we mentioned, eh, Companies don't want to invest in science, yeah. right? That's the business of governments. That's the business on our planet of North America, EU, and China. I mean, and Japan, to a first approximation. Sorry, also South Korea. Like To a first approximation, <laughs> right? That's where the science comes from on our planet, and that's a public good, and it gets sometimes industrialized. Sometimes it's just science for its own sake, and that's I'm a fan of that. I think that's good. I think no insight into the way reality works is ever wasted. Maybe it just has a long shelf life. Sure. Right. I mean, we're seeing that again with pandemic, but like the AI and ML thing, and it's like a craze and it's a lot of money has gone into, I think a lot of dumb money, frankly, right. uh, a, too much money. There just can't be that many winners, but you know, the, 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 what's important on the company and the enterprise side, that's what I care about is that, you know, that, that they invest in that, but they invest smart and there's some like predecessor investments that have to happen. Like you need to get your house in order. Not only with respect to governments, not primarily even with respect to talent. There's a lot of AI talent from higher in the world. The thing that you have to do that no one else can do for you, this gets back to the point I was making before, but what is, you say to any average, you just 
pick randomly a fortune the fortune 1000 and we can say to that company whatever it is whatever space it's in however old it is what tell me why you have a right to exist i mean corporations are funny things legally i mean they're 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 i mean they're these weird uh everlasting artificial persons that are, i mean it's there's a lot of just from a sociology point of view, like scratch your head, like what is this thing? Like, so one of the one of their one of their reasons to exist, one of them, obviously we're going to maximize shareholders. But also, you want to you, you need to have you need to do that in a way that's consistent with the with the flourishing of civilization, wow. right? And so one of the things that average company can say is, well, look, we control, we own, we steward this data universe that is unique in all the world, right? I mean, one thing you can say about every firm is no other company has that company's data. Right, I mean, it's just a thing that we know to be true. It's just logic, right? It's just a, sure. a, 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 a an implication of just the way the world works. What, what words mean? Um, and, and so to sit on that and squander it, and to fail to put it to use to drive down prices, improve quality, better, you know, increase customer joy, get a drug to market faster, like whatever it is you do, right? The data should serve that purpose, and the company in some sense should serve the data. In the sense that you know we, we've we've taken care of it, we've stewarded, we've been responsible, good citizens, so that we have you know some right to this profit and this this increase and this our share of the value that we've you know capturing some share of the value that we created for for everyone. And and w- without the ability, like AI and ML are completely pointless. They have no end in themselves. There's no value there inherent sure. to them. They're only a means to do that more efficiently, effectively. And it's given where we are historically with some kind of spooky, you know, like novelty, like, oh, wow, you can do that. You know, like, again, we're sitting here recording this in, uh, what is this, late August. This GPT-3 thing has just hit the market, and not the market, but kind of the the, the, the idea sphere around technology companies. This is this, you know, pretty cutting-edge NLP technology uh, I was earlier today, I consider myself, I live near D.C., I, I think I'm a pretty good student of the political landscape of my country. I miserably failed to predict Trump or robot from 16 quotes that was hot today on the internet, <laughs> right? I got like five of 16. I mean, I, and, and I'm not an expert political commentator, but I pay careful attention. Again, in D.C., occupational hazard or regional hazard. And I failed miserably. I mean, that's really, really interesting. Uh, in in two years, we won't think of that as so interesting anymore. It'll be part of the background and landscape of our of our world, and that's crazy. But like to take a technology like that and get any value out of it, to apply AI, ML, natural language processing, natural language understanding, the the absolute unavoidable truth for every business leader out there. Who and, and I suspect there's not more than ten percent of the Fortune 1000 that's just killing it in this regard. Maybe five percent. Yeah, the, the game is get your data house in order. And again, you've say, uh, said uh, quite generously, Knowledge Graph is a way to do that. There are other technologies. Certainly, Startup doesn't hold that whole story. It's an industry-wide effort. Uh, and it's okay because it's a, it's a planet global-wide benefit if, you know, when we can do that. I mean, sure. I, I'll just say I think particularly given the last couple of years politically all over North America and Western Europe, I think – Given my druthers, I would prefer that large organizations, whether it be government or, or public companies or private enterprises, make more decisions driven by data and good science and sound, rational, rather than 
you know, some of the other ways people can make decisions. So, I mean, I think there's a big benefit that AI and ML certainly has a role to play. But in, in some sense, we have really over focused on the means or on the, the particular features of the tool at hand and ignored the, the, the feedstock or the, the raw capital inputs that those tools act upon. And, and, and so in that sense, like I, I think aligning yourself as an entrepreneur in the technology space to, to improving data, and that's a big, you know, that's a big chunk of what, of what our industry does. That's, that is, I think a future-proof investment. And we are, you know, I, I think it's interesting. It's something you said earlier that I wanted to point out, like we have seen this huge like Cambrian explosion in the data in the enterprise and in society. And I, I feel quite confident predicting we are really at the beginning of that. Yeah, that is that is, that is not going to stop. And and so, you know, like, what are you going to do? Just create all this data and store it somewhere and hope someday some magic happens? No, you got to, you know, like, so the truly, I think, strategic, aspirational CIO, CTO, CEO, C-suite folks who want to be serious about that stuff and look upon the FANG companies with some, you know, understandable envy. Like, what is going on that they got this such nonlinear, you know, value creation and growth? Well, it's not just the data story, right? But the data story is a significant part of it. And I think from the point of view of history, we talked about that before, if you get a time machine go 50 years in the future, it would be completely uncontroversial uh, that these FANG companies aren't really technology companies at all. They're like the first five or six or seven companies that figured out the new data-driven world. Yeah. And, you know, there was a land grab, as there always is with the new technology, and it grabbed a lot of early value and they deserve every bit of that. But, you know, I think of always a company like John Deere, important American brand, blue chip stalwart feeds the world in some important sense. And, you know, there are smart investors like you trying to figure out how to take some Stanford dropouts in ag tech space who've never even been on a farm, right? Couldn't tell the working end of a steer from a combine from a tractor. But if that group can figure out how to monetize, transform, uh, the data that John Deere has a right to say that they steward before Deere does, that's bad for John Deere. I'm not trying to pick on John Deere, but like that's that's the game that the rest of the Fortune 1000 is in. And the smart folks know they're in that, the game, in that game, and that's the game they're playing. I fear, it, you know, if you could do a survey to figure out who's not even paying attention, you would have a list of, you know, Most. companies. Yeah, <laughs> companies that are that are just ripe for disruption, right? Like yeah. I would not. I would, I would not want to bet my paycheck on uh, working at a company that's indifferent to this data change because it is, uh, yeah, I mean, change is coming. Yeah. I think this all begs the question of where are we headed next, right? I think we talked about it a little bit. We're in an ecosystem now where the data quality is fundamentally flawed. Even though we're capturing more and more of it, it's either not being accessed and or it's poor quality. A lot of money has been spent on the other side, insights, generation. But the tools that we leverage to be there, and I'll be the one you just described at Lang, are just that, right? They're tools relative, they're means to an end. They're not an end in themselves. And to that end, there's development that needs to occur there. And then we both agree that the sophistication of use case, we go out in the future, is only going to increase. Uh, and we're going to be, we went 50 years before, we've blown away with the level of prediction, with the level of insight, optimization, et cetera, that we're generating in that period. And so I'd be curious, as you think out, you know, whatever number of years you want to go, you know, how do you think about the development of the space, uh, both that data linkage relative to insights, relative to actual use case? How do you think about the knowledge graph and the importance of the knowledge graph or whatever iteration of it might exist in the future? And, and broadly, how you think about where we're headed? 
Yeah, so I have to take that question in two ways. First, as a citizen. It's a big question. And, 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 yeah, and then it, it's a, a big ending. I'll give you 30 seconds, right? I think uh, a philosopher would like that, though, so there yeah, you go. That's pretty good. <laughs> uh, you know, like, as a private citizen, um, I, I worry about all this because I want to see, I think privacy is a good liberal value in the, and I mean liberal here in the sense of yeah, you know, sure. what distinguishes the U.S. and Western Europe from other countries, uh, not, you know, not, not a partisan political thing, uh, dignity, the individual, you know, all that good stuff. And, and that there is a sphere of, you know, inviolable human rights. And, and, and one of those things is, you know, this notion of privacy and more, all things being equal, my business is my business. It's certainly not the government's. Um, and, you know, like, so I worry about companies that are not, I won't say heavily regulated enough because I'm not a fan of heavy regulation. I am a fan of thoughtful, insightful, um, appropriate regulation. Sure. Um, you know, and, 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 and again, as a kind of classic liberal, I think individuals have the right to opt in or out of bargains and, you know, contracts as they see fit. And I might want to freely trade some privacy about what I browse on the internet for some, good or service or customers. I mean, I'm perfectly happy with that, but we need a framework that, that I think makes all of that more balanced. And I think in the U S anyway, we are quite out of balance. Now look, taking a historical perspective, that makes sense because we are in this very frothy, you know, dynamic growth period. You're not going to get everything right. That's fine. This is not throwing a rock at anybody politically or any from an oversider or regulatory point of view, we just need to continue to address this and and make marginal uh, changes on, on the edges. Now, from a from a technology entrepreneur guy who works sixty hours a week to you know someday have the freedom to not work at all, but then go work, so, you know like that whole thing. Um, I I think that where we're going is exactly. Uh, I'll just kind of continue out the point I was making earlier. I think that we will continue to see wide scale disruption. So again, I, I'm super timely that you're asking me this question when, you know, I think it was at Monday, Dow Jones, uh, industrial average, you know, made some pretty historic swap outs. Uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm pretty proud. One of Stardog's newest customers got swapped in. Uh, so that's pretty exciting for us. But I mean, I was kind of astonished. I'm a Houstonian. My dad's a chemical engineer. My parents still live in Houston near actually Exxon Mobil's world headquarters. I was astonished to see Exxon getting sort of swapped out. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what to think about that. This is not really my business to make an adjustment. I don't say whether it's right or wrong. And okay, that maybe doesn't have anything to do with data. It has something more to do with, you know, sustainability, climate change. And, sure. and that's obviously important. But like, I do think that we're coming into a period where we face, we, all of us, face significant challenges, climate change being probably the primary one. Pandemic's obviously the one that's that's top of mind right now where we have to be smart. We have to be rational. I mean, I'm a, clearly a big fan of public reason, science, knowledge, evidence, you know, all that good stuff. Um, I think again, firms that recognize that and get out in front of it and adopt, you know, like just frankly, just a, a, adopt these as goals of the business in a, you know, three, five, 10 year kind of standard planning thing will position themselves well to meet the challenges of the future that we're all going to face as civilization and that they'll face as individual firms. You know, some of those companies will get disrupted anyway, because there's always winners and losers, right? Sure. But 
companies that address that and address it quickly in a timely fashion will be much more resilient, right? Much more able to respond, much more agile. I think it's pretty fair to say that most of the goals that a business wants to set out for itself, you know, big companies uh, are somehow influenced by their ability to, you know, we talk about agility, flexibility, leanness, uh, you know, insight, all those good things. Data runs or powers or influences all of that, right? The right people and the right data strategy take a company really far. And, and what I imagine we, we have in front of us is, and this is not new in any kind of capitalist sense, we've been doing this in America forever, but I think the pace of disruption and businesses falling by the wayside and quickly replaced by you know, new entrants, by startups, will only increase. I mean, maybe that's the story we tell about Tesla, which is just sure. completely out of control right now as stock. Uh, but I mean, as overvalued as I think it is, I drive one of these cars, right? <laughs> and, and frankly, I don't like that guy very much as a person, but I yeah. love his product. I mean, he, that's not, his style is not my style, but uh, you know, there's something important happening there. And, and okay, that's not necessarily a data story, but uh, most companies uh, that don't produce an you know, actual physical good, all those other companies, and even some of those that do, but the service economy, the knowledge work economy, all of those companies, all those firms are, you know, they, they just have in front of them an existential challenge, you know, like, are you going to meet this and, and preserve your right to exist yeah. and maybe and continue to exist or not and not, right? And so from a data point of view, and just pull it back to, you know, the talking about a lot of stuff that isn't really my expertise, but from a data management enterprise software point of view, I think the future is, and this is exactly the future we're working towards a startup to enable for our customers is, you know, being able to connect and derive value from the meaning of data, irrespective of where it is, not based on its location, but based on its meaning, irrespective of its format, irrespective of any of the, any of the technology details that don't contribute to what the data actually means. Like, why is this significant for your business? What is this row what is this row and column and cell in this database or spreadsheet or paragraph in this document? What does that mean for your business? Why is that important, right? Uh, until, or uh, I, I, I should say instead, once a company is dealing with their data on that basis, then they have a chance. I mean, that that that's the future. Companies that get there will do well, all other things being equal. Companies that don't will not because uh, a lot of the, legacy way of dealing with data and managing data and then deriving insight from it is very much bound up in um, these kind of meaningless technology implementation details that ultimately don't matter. Business leaders understand this intuitively, right? It's frankly, it's us technologists who have gotten this wrong. But again, you know, we've gotten it wrong for the best of reasons. This is a hard future we're trying to build. It was not easy or obvious. I'll just, I can't resist pointing out here at the end that I talked about relational databases and relational technology being like the first stalwart wave of all the value creation, all the big businesses, all the big companies. Everybody had relational databases. Uh, but like the graph technology that we are commercializing actually historically predates the relational model. It was called a network database in the 60s, right? So people's original impulse for how to organize data wasn't rows and columns and tables. It was nodes and edges in a graph. But, and, and the reason relational won that early fight is because we just, people, PhD computer scientists at Berkeley and at CMU and at Maryland and Texas and Stanford, figured out how to make that stuff go fast and scalable. 
yeah. before uh, other smart folks figured out the graph stuff. So there, there's something about, you know, where we're going as a, as a, as an industry about, you know, really just being able to master data, all the data that the enterprise owns, connect it again, based on what it means, query it, derive any value from it in a way that's only limited by, you know, human ingenuity, the state of the art with respect to algorithms, statistical, logical insight, and, and not much else like that. That's where we need to all be as a, a civilization, as a society uh, here in the U S and as individual firms, you know, acting in, in a market or in markets, uh, yes, to maximize shareholder benefit, but also to like contribute, you know, contribute something positive, even if it's just to individual's personal experience, right? Um, getting to that place where we're only limited by human creativity and imagination, which I like to bet on. This is where I'm also like with Warren Buffett. I will bet on that any day. You know, too much now, too many firms, too many companies, too many enterprises are limited by the technology, the software, the legacy. We want to be in a world, we want to create a world in which that's not the case. I do think we will achieve that. And then I think we'll be in a, we're going to have to work really hard to, to, you know, sort out some, some larger challenges around uh, climate in particular, but there's, we have no hope of doing that without being able to, you know, achieve something like data mastery. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the little part of it that we sort of pick away at, uh, at sort of, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't do the big pundit hat very often, but that's my attempt to say, you know, like I do think that there is a, there is a test in front of all the big enterprises around, particularly around data mastery, data management. And, um, yeah, we'll see. It's, it's fun. It's a fun way to spend, fun way to spend the day. I'll put it this way. Yeah. Well, there you go. I think that's a, a perfect way to end this about what we have time for. And um, I'd say this very much appreciate you joining. I said at the beginning, this has been great. Folks are really going to enjoy it themselves. And it was great having you on. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate the time and, and uh, interest.